Welcome to Dying to Ask the Road to Tokyo. I have been covering the Olympics now for 20 years, so pretty much my entire adulthood. And when I look back at my life and try to place life events, I usually place them around an Olympics. When did my dad retire? On the day of the 2000 Sydney Olympics opening ceremony. When did I get married? Right after the 2004 Athens Olympics. When was my first son born? 12 weeks before the 2006 Torino Winter Games in Italy. Yep, I was in Italy while my three-month-old son was home with dad. He's now a freshman in high school. I'm still married, so if you are judging, you can stop it right now. Now, in addition to measuring time and big life events, I also mark some friendships because this project has been such a dominant part of my professional and my personal life. So when you go on one of these Olympic trips with our Hearst Television Olympic team, you basically spend... 24-7 with your team. That can go south quickly. It has in the past, not very often, but usually it ends up being kind of magic because there's this like amazing alchemy that happens when you put people together. So because of that, you get to know people really quickly. So some of my best girlfriends, the tell your secrets, admit all your shortcomings types, are actually producers from those trips. They've seen me at my best and they've certainly seen me at my worst. And some of my favorite friends are actually athletes that I've covered over the years. Because the weird thing about hanging out with athletes and their families during an Olympics is that you're hanging out with them during one of the most special times of their lives. It can be insanely personal and it can really bond you in a very cool way. So when you meet up with them on a beach in Brazil or in a coffee shop in South Korea, both of those have happened, you are actually the face that they recognize from home. So it's like a fast pass to friendship sometimes. And today's guest is somebody that I would put definitely into that category. I couldn't like or respect her more. Kim Conley is on her way to becoming a three-time Olympic runner. She's a distance runner who competed in both the London and the Rio Olympics. She made the London Olympic team get this in the 5,000 meters by 0.04 seconds. <laughs> it was amazing. And she punched a qualifying time to go to the U.S. Olympic track and field trials a full year before they were supposed to happen in June of 2020. Well, you know what happened after that. June, you know, came around, we weren't going to have an Olympics. And Kim was the first athlete on my radar who publicly said that delaying the Olympic Games was absolutely the right thing to do. Now, as it turns out, it was the only thing that you could do. Flash forward a year, and in some ways, her life is really different. She's moved. But in some ways, it's exactly the same because she's still running. So on this Dying to Ask, how Kim made the call to leave Northern California where she had a massive support system and to move to Flagstaff, Arizona in the middle of a pandemic. The lengths she went to to not catch COVID, what she feared was going to happen if she did get sick, and how you and I can get more resilient and learn to go with the flow no matter what life throws our way. The Olympic hack for literally putting one foot in front of the other. Here's Kim Conley on Dying to Ask. Olympians, they're just different. Sure, they're fitter and faster, but they're mentally different too. Because when the body breaks down, the Olympic mindset takes over. And this year, with the first ever delayed Olympics, that mindset is more important than ever. My name is Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and I have covered the last 10 Olympics for Hearst Television. 20 years of studying and, well, obsessing about how Olympians do life. These are the stories of how Team USA's athletes get to the top of a podium and how you can get some Olympic edge in your life coming out of one of the most challenging years ever 
for all of us. This is Dying to Ask, The Road to Tokyo. Kim, where are you today? I am at home in Flagstaff, Arizona. Home in Flagstaff. Okay, biggest change you've made in the last year is you moved. Yes. Uh, I mean, we we bought a house here in 2016, so we've been splitting time between here and Sacramento for um, four or five years. But yeah, we've moved full-time now to, to Flagstaff. And did COVID kind of speed that up, prompt that? What, how'd you guys make that decision? Um, yeah, there were, there were several factors, but certainly like, you know, being here when everything shut down and, and having an altitude camp, like turn into four months of living here and being really happy about that, um, kind of helped us realize maybe this is where we were meant to be. Yeah. Well, and you know, if anybody who's able to go remote these days, you're not the only one who's made that kind of a, a lifestyle change for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We've seen it a lot. It, it's interesting um, when you look at athletes over the last year, who has been able to really stay on track and who has had more challenges, the runners have had a real advantage over, say, the team sports, the, the ball sports, because you really could continue no matter where you were. Yeah, that's right. Um, we're, yeah, I mean, you <laughs> running boomed during the pandemic. There were more people finding <laughs> running. Than yeah, you might have more competition now. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So we were really fortunate in that we, you know, could really continue training. And, um, you know, the biggest thing we were missing for a while was, was racing. Um, But even that has rebounded like never before. And and I feel like we have even more race opportunities than we've ever had now. How did you decide um, what to do schedule wise in terms of training when you didn't have the races on the calendar? Because like with runners, you guys are so you plan out you're, you're like better than a preschool teacher who has to plan everything out through the day. I mean, you plan your year out in advance and none of us have been able to plan anything over the last year. So how did you and your coach and husband drew decide what a day should look like when you didn't have stuff on a calendar? Yeah, it it was a challenge for a while. We, um, you know, we just, we kind of took a step back from that normal rigid schedule and, um, just, you know, went exploring and discovering new places and, and having fun with running, Um, but then when I did get to race, I think I had about three weeks notice before the first race, which is, you know, not at all how we would normally operate. I would like more like three months notice, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but of course, you know, I seized the opportunity anyway, but then, you know, I went and ran, um, like 50 seconds slower than my PR (laughs) wasn't a very pretty race. Um, but it was a good, good jolt and, and helped me you know, appreciate why we do so many of the little things and have all that structure because simply running on the trails, you know, at altitude, what isn't enough for me to get it done. Um, the level I, I, I want to, uh, or need to, you know, to try to make an Olympic team. So, um, so we had a lot of fun last spring, but then in the summer when I raced again, it kind of like woke me up and realized, all right, I need to like get back to, you know, the fundamentals of serious training. And what are those fundamentals? Oh, I mean, things like strides after a run, um, you know, just like it's and and a little bit less of the like exploring and stopping and, you know, Drew pulling out his phone to look at a map so we could decide maybe where we want to explore. And he did oh my run. gosh, you guys were running like me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> so it's, yeah, it's definitely more like, all right, we know the route, we know we can run, you know, like sub seven minute pace on it. Um, and, and, you know, we, we do things with an eye on like the workout that's coming later in the week. Um, so it's just a little bit more focused in that way. Yeah. What, what were the biggest fears? I mean, other than the obvious of catching COVID, nobody wanted to catch COVID, but you did hear a lot of people. And I saw a lot of Olympic athletes who also, you know, said, Hey, I got it. You know, here's where I am. What was your biggest fear about getting it as an endurance athlete, especially? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that certainly the reports of like myocarditis in 10% of people. And then, um, and then just knowing that it was an upper respiratory disease and lung function is so important. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of kind of like long-term health and ability to return to running at a high level, um, it was definitely a virus I you know, didn't want to get. Have you met other athletes who have dealt with some of those things? Do you hear about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, there are a few right here in Flagstaff that, you know, like, like professional runners that have caught it and, um, and really had lingering effects. It's, uh, it's taking them a long time to, to get over it. So it's, um, yeah, I feel for them. Yeah. Cause you just never know. And especially this year with limited time, you just don't want to have to deal with that, I guess. No, no, exactly. I mean, distance running is just one of those things where you're just like stacking weeks on weeks of training to, to be at your best. And so any interruption, you're just delaying the progress. You're, you're, you're going to be short of the fitness you could have been in June, even, mm -hmm. even in April. Um, you know, it might seem like there's still a long time before the Olympic trials, but really, you know, any setback now is, is preventing you from being what you could have been in June. And so, um, you know, hopefully they don't listen to me say that because... <laughs> Did you ever um, go through a time this year where, you know, because there's been such a question mark on everything where you just were like, you know, I don't know if I want to continue doing this. Do I want to still keep Olympics on the calendar? Do I want to shift the focus a little bit? Did you have that any kind of moments where you thought about making a change? Um, no, no, if anything, it just like reinforced the like, man, I want this to happen so bad. Um, you know, like the, the fears of cancellation were, are, are hard. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess there are some moments when I would, when I was really convinced, like there's no way the Olympics can happen. Um, and they, they haven't been canceled and, you know, they weren't getting canceled that sometimes I was just like, I just like need the inevitable to happen so I can move on and, but, you know, in terms of like moving on from running, absolutely not. It's just, you know, I, I think like my long-term plan was always to move to the marathon after 2020. And so that's been put on hold for a year. And so I've had my moments where I'm like, ah, like I'm a little bit off track, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but for the most part, really, you know, what I, what I want more than anything is to be in Eugene in June contending for a spot on the Olympic team. Yeah. It, I remember last year, you were one of the first athletes when they announced the delay um, of a year, you were one of the first to say right decision. That is the right thing to do. Do you have a pretty good feeling that this is all still on track and going to happen this summer? Well, you know, for a lot, for a long time, I just thought like, there's no way that, and it shouldn't because, well, even right now, I mean, it's easy to get lulled into like, you know, the, the rate of vaccination in the US makes me feel very like positive about what we can do and, and certainly by the summer what we'll be able to do and then I have to pause and, and look at what's going on in the rest of the world and 
remember that the Olympics are about the entire world. Um, and then not only that, it's also about all these sports. And, and so when you look at countries in Europe that are going on lockdown, I definitely have my concerns about equity and, you know, and athletes arriving in Tokyo with kind of like coming from a, a level playing field in terms of how they've been able to prepare. Um, but it's also, Tokyo has not even given like a hint that that's <laughs> their intention would be to cancel. No, I, you know, it's like, you know, at a certain point, like it's, it's not my, it's certainly not my decision. And so it's like, I just have to like block out those thoughts and just, you know, be the athlete that is going to be ready to go in the summer. It's such an interesting point when you talk about just kind of the equity for the athletes, because there are a lot of athletes who come from um, more poor countries who take advantage of their time in the Olympic Village to get medical care, <laughs> which I've, I've always kind of been fascinated by. And I don't know that people necessarily know that, but within the athlete's village, there are dentists and all kinds of doctors that athletes can go to for very basic things that you and I would just put on a calendar and not even think about. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so then you're like, you, you're laying like COVID and, and the ability to get vaccinated or not vaccinated on top of all that. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm amazed that, that I'll be amazed when it's all like pulled off in the summer. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems at this point, like things are going to be on track. So talk to me a little bit about resilience over the last year. Um, the people who do make these Olympic teams from around the world will no doubt be the most physically fit, but they will also be probably the most mentally fit as well. Um, what have you personally learned about resilience over the last year? Yeah, I think that um, it's the, the resilience is coming from like the, the ability to to block out all the like questions of uncertainty and and continue to get up every day and and prepare as if um, and yeah I think the the athletes that that succeed this summer will be the ones that have been able to to do that successfully and not let all the doubts creep in. I don't want you to give away all your secrets, but for those of us who are not Olympic athletes, how do you block things out? Like, is there, is there a, a hack that you use when those kind of thoughts start to creep in? Well, I mean, you know, to be honest, like I've been told, like I've, I've worked with a sports psychologist since 2004, the same one who was at UC Davis and he's retired now. Um, we still work together and he's told me that I am very, very good at compartmentalizing. So like, I won't, I won't lie and say like, yeah, like anybody can do it. Um, Cause I think some people are just like naturally better than others, but um, yeah, I mean, one thing he's taught me that that's helped is we call it like thought stopping. And, and basically it's when you're having like a negative thought or a thought around doubt, you have to be able to like be self-aware enough to identify that. And then, but then you automatically have something prepared that is what you replace that thought with. So it's, you have kind of like your, your negative thought of like, I don't know how the Olympics could possibly even go off. And then, you know, the thought that I like have to replace it with is like, I'm going to be like the best athlete I can be in June and I'm going to contend for an Olympic spot, you know, and, and it's like, it's like, can't even think about like Tokyo. It's like, I have to think about Eugene and finishing on the podium there. So really like breaking it into small, small things, but having that next thing already ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It sounds like it's a little bit, um, probably harder to perfect though, <laughs> harder to practice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Have you talked much? I would imagine you probably mentor, um, younger, newer athletes. What kinds of questions do they ask you, especially after this last year? 
Um, a lot of people ask like how I've been navigating the, you know, this whole time and how I've been dealing with the uncertainty. Um, and, you know, I mean, basically I've just kind of, I mean, kind of like we've been talking about in this interview, like I've just kind of like been sharing what, what I've been doing. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if that would work for everyone, but I just know what has been working for me. So. Do you think we'll see some interesting times coming out of runners? Because like you said, everybody has discovered running, but the runners were able to go run. The race walkers were able to go walk. The swimmers were able to go swim. Do you think we will see some interesting times coming out at the Olympics because people have been so focused and not had a lot of the other distractions of travel and competing? Is that possible? Um, yeah, yes. I mean, I think, I think we're going to see... <laughs> this is loaded, Deirdre. <laughs> some very interesting times but there are just so many factors involved you know including like the the shoe technology that's been developed in this like interim that's allowed like all the shoe companies to catch up to what um, Nike was doing and then you know there's also there was also like a hold on drug testing unfortunately um, during COVID so that like I think that'll play a role too. Tell me a little bit about drug testing over the last year, because elite athletes and, you know, Olympians go through random drug testing to make sure everybody is doing the right thing. And that actually got suspended during the early days of COVID. What has happened since that time? Um, I, yeah, to my knowledge, it's, it is like fully back on track now, but there just, there was um, a pause because like what drug testing, <laughs> what drug testing involves is someone coming into your house um, either taking blood and then definitely like going into the bathroom with you and watching you pee. Um, and, and so obviously, you know, when things were really shut down and before they'd been able to create like protocols they were comfortable with, there was just absolutely no drug testing going on because it involved human contact. Interesting. Um, and so now, you know, presumably I would imagine that's all kind of back on track. Yeah, it is. In theory. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so what does the next couple of months look like for you? Um, so I am in Flagstaff tra trading hard um, until the beginning of May. And then I will go to Southern California for some races and then migrate north to Portland for a race. And then we'll stay in Oregon. Um, that's at the end of May. And then we'll stay through the Olympic trials in June in Oregon. Are you guys pretty much just driving everywhere? It sounds like you're playing it pretty safe. Yeah, we are. Um, you know, like, so I, I get the second dose of the vaccine tomorrow. And so really I could fly again, um, but we've been driving everywhere now since last March. And the way it works out with this travel is it's kind of, I don't know. I've enjoyed the driving. I don't mind it at all. And we bring our dog everywhere. And so <laughs> Drew would be driving anyway. Um, so if it seems like a lot, you know, at the end of, at the end of May, if I want to like fly from California to Portland, I might, but, um, at this point it's like, you know, I'm from Santa Rosa. We're planning to have a stop between LA and Portland, <laughs> Santa Rosa. And, um, so I'm pretty, I'm happy with the, the plan of driving, but, you know, ideally I make it to Tokyo and, and then I'll be on a plane again. <laughs> yeah, no driving to Tokyo, that's for sure. What do you know in terms of like this summer? Obviously, they've said, you know, no fans, so family's not going. Do you know what that would mean for Drew as a coach? 
Yeah, they, what I've heard is no personal coaches. Um, they'll basically make the Olympic Village into a bubble. Um, and you, athletes are just bussed between training venues and competition venues and the Olympic Village. Um, so a very different Olympic experience than what it's been like in the past. But, um, you know, I, I went to the Pan Am Games in 2019 in Lima. And they, for, I don't really remember why, but USATF said no personal coaches at that event also. So Drew didn't come. And so, you know, what they're talking about for Tokyo is exactly what I just did at the Pan Am Games. So I'm kind of like, well, that's all right. I, I handled it fine then. Yeah. But a very different Olympic experience, especially for those first time Olympians this summer. Oh, I know. Yeah, I, I do. It, yeah. When I think about that, I feel, I feel bad for them um, because it's just, yeah, the Olympics is just so like, so much energy and so exciting. And, you know, I think about my first Olympic experience in London and it was just like mind blowing. And and I don't think it won't be the same, but I mean, I certainly think that the, the Japanese in Tokyo will still like put on a really good show. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, Has the Olympics come to represent something different for you now going for this third one, especially after the last year? Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's changed every time for me because the first time was just so like thrilling and unexpected. Um, and, and since then, you know, it's much more of a, like, like outright stated goal that, you know, I'm thinking about over the course of four years. Um, and, and so in 2016, it was just like, you know, something I like progressed to and, and kind of had no doubt about. And then the last four years, um, have had a lot more challenges, both like on a personal level, just with like injuries and setbacks, but then also now with the pandemic and the extra year, which the extra year actually was probably good for me in terms of like getting past some of the injuries and rebuilding fitness. Um, but yeah, I think to, to make this team would feel like an even bigger triumph just in terms of like getting back to that level of fitness and form. And will you pursue both 5,000 and 10,000 this summer? I think so. Um, I, the 10,000 is the second in the schedule and I might only race that, but right now I only have the Olympic standard in the 5,000. So I have to, um, I have to be a little bit strategic in terms of like, do I want to run another 10,000 and chase the standard? Do I want to count on the Olympic trials, 10,000 going standard pace, um, which, you know, every other year at the Olympic trials, I've ended up running the Olympic standard in the Olympic trials. So peace in me feels like, okay, I can do that. Um, but it's a little bit of a gamble too. Yeah. Well, after the last year isn't everything. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kim, what's a good way for people to keep up with you over the next few months? Uh, Probably Instagram, KF Conley. Great. Kim, thank you so much. Best of luck to you in the next couple of months. Stay well, and we will hopefully see you in Tokyo this summer. Yeah. Thank you. It's great to see you. Quick story. So Kim came out and was a guest speaker for my middle school cross country team. So picture 20 kids, mainly boys. Most of those boys like squirting each other with water bottles. Awesome. And she shared her story of what it was like to go to the Olympics. So two things I remember from that day. First one, some kid raises his hand and says, what's it like when you lose? Wasn't my kid, I don't think. But her answer was just incredible. She said, no matter how I do in a race, I walk away and I ask myself, what did I do well and what could I do better? Now, I don't know if any of those kids, especially the kids with the water bottles, really absorbed the power of what she said. But I found it to be very game-changing because those were two questions she asks herself even on the days where she wins the race. What could I do better? 
What a way to stay grounded, right? So I've applied that to my own athletic pursuits, but also I've applied it just to my work, especially in you know Zoom world where like now I'm sitting in a laundry room trying to make magic. <laughs> Not always easy, but what can I do better? What could I do better, even if it's a small thing? So the second thing that I remember from that day was as she was leaving, Kim walks up and she hands me this bag. And she said, hey, I was doing this closet clean out and I wanted to give this to you. You're one of the few people who I think would like it and it would fit you. Now, looking back, I think she was probably getting ready to downsize and move. <laughs> Hence the whole like topic of the podcast today, moving to Flagstaff. I think she was really already kind of noodling that in her head. But I opened up the bag and inside this bag, there was an official Olympic team sweatshirt. So athletes get from all the countries, they get a suitcase full of swag at the game. So if you don't come home with a medal, and most of them don't, you have this lovely parting gift and very cool stuff. So friends, that is like the coolest, hey, I'm sending this to Goodwill unless you want it offer. I think I have ever gotten from a friend. And that sweatshirt is now a prized possession, one of the rather large collection of Olympic memorabilia that I own, but that one has a pretty cool story behind it. So I appreciate it. And it was a really nice gesture to have that. So look for Kim in the U.S. Olympic track and field trials in Oregon coming up June 18th through the 27th. And if you ever need a book recommendation, follow Kim on Instagram. She is a voracious reader and she posts a lot of the titles that she's currently reading. Thanks for listening. Rate and review the show wherever you're listening to it right now. And I will see you next week on Dying to Ask.